Hello and good morning, everyone. Only positivity here. I have my coffee with me, ready to explore this new phase of life with you all. So, over the past few years, I have gained a whole new perspective on life, and I've realized that life is too short to not be enjoying yourself while doing great things. So, come along with me as I explore this new lens through fitness, photography, reading, traveling, cannabis, and much more. Looking forward to the journey, guys. And remember, only positivity. Hello and good morning, everyone. Only positivity here. I have my coffee with me. Ready to kick off podcast number 24 on this playlist that I'm looking to launch called Elevated Thoughts. So before diving into the book and everything for today, let's just start with the level set. So as I endeavor upon pursuing knowledge and life experience in this next phase of life through fitness, photography, traveling, and much more, one habit that I've really formed is reading. So this podcast essentially goes through some of the books I've been reading as of late, taking those lessons learned and applying them to experiences in my life. So um, before diving into the book, let's go ahead and start with today's story. So, um, you know, I actually randomly thought of this story this morning when I was brushing my teeth. And I just started busting out laughing. Um, so, you know, just as a precursor, um, you know, as you get older, you start to notice like little tendencies about people, um, their little nuances and things like that. Um, so, you know, one thing you start to notice is people's defense mechanisms as you get to know them, right? Um, some people, um, they, they point blame at others or some people um, laugh at themselves or some people will, um, you know, poke jokes at others and things like that. So you start to notice people's um, defense mechanisms or their, their behavior traits. So, you know, coming back to myself, one thing that I really do is I laugh at myself a lot. And so if like, um, you know, something, we're in a conversation and um, we're bouncing back and forth, like I'm going to roast myself as well as other people as well, right? Just to show that like, you know, I can take it and I can also dish it. So um, in this particular situation, you know, this takes me back a few years ago when we were at my buddy's place downtown and, um, you know, a lot of times uh, there'll be some other people at, you know, these functions of ours or these like engagements that we get into. So we're pre-gaming at my buddy's place. Um, and, you know, some of his friends are there, his work friends, some of his cousins are there. Um, and also our core group of guy friends is there as well. And one thing about our core group of guy friends is um, we, we roast each other pretty heavily, um, you know, inappropriately sometimes. But that's just our humor, right? We're, we're silly. We're goofy. Um, we have raunchy humor. And we all we all really love that about each other. So anyway, um, on this particular night, um, so I had this um, huge zit on my forehead, right? And I don't really get acne that much, but every now and then when I do, it's like a, a very aggressive or angry pimple, you know? So I had one on my head, on my forehead, and there's no hiding it, right? Like I don't wear makeup or anything like that. So it's just there, it's present. And um, it was like really red, and like I said, it was angry. So... Um, uh, you know, there's some people that I'm introduced to at, at this pregame and um, we're talking, right? We're just, we're catching up, we're doing this um, and I'm just, I'm putting it out there. I'm like, you know what, dude, I got this massive zit um, on my forehead and um, yeah, I just sprouted this morning. I don't know what to do about it. Like, it's just so weird. It looks so gross. And you know, those people are being really nice because um, they don't know me that well. Um, and they're like, oh no, you know, we didn't even notice it until you mentioned it. Like, you look fine, all good. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm just like putting it out there, right? I'm just like setting it at the forefront. So all the while, everyone's kind of saying, oh no, it's cool, man. Like, no worries. It looks okay. Um, doesn't look too bad. 
And so one of my best friends is in the back casually making drinks. And he walks by and hears this. And he goes, he goes, fuck that. You've been thinking too hard, bitch. What is that on your forehead? And I go, oh, shit. So I, so I, I spit out my drink. I bust out laughing. And I'm just, I'm dying at this point, right? Because everyone is being so nice to me. And my dude comes from the back end and just gives me the ultimate roast, right? So um, it was the funniest thing I've heard in a while. Uh, I was laughing about this morning when I was brushing my teeth. Um, so no lessons to be learned, I guess, besides, you know, being able to laugh at yourself, right? No one's perfect. Um, and that's okay, right? Um, and I feel really confident when I have my guys around, we roast each other, um, and it's fun. So, you know, that's the story for today. Um, so reverting back to the book, right? So we're going to be going through the crime book by Big Ideas Simply Explained, and we're on part four today. Um, so there's there's many types of, of crime that's occurred, and crime has evolved um, through the ages, right? We go through uh, bandits, robbers, arsonists, con artists, white-collar crimes, and then for today, we're going to be going through organized crime. So, you know, one interesting thing about this book is that it gives you a new perspective on crime, right? So um, what I gained from it is that crime is a direct reaction to economic and political policy, right? If there's poverty involved, people are going to re rebel against it, right? They're going to find ways to get out of their social standing um, and really make their ends meet, right? So um, a lot of times you might think crime is just, hey, this is a bad person, committed a crime. But a lot of times when people are put in difficult situations, they have to choose, right? Especially if they're supporting their family and others and whatnot. So um, like I said, today's topic is organized crime. Um, so the book defines it as a category of offenses that is perpetrated by a group of people with a formal structure whose primary purpose is to obtain money through illegal activities, right? So we talk about groups of people that come together to perform illegal activities and they have an organized structure within, right? And the purpose of that structure or the purpose of that organization is to commit crime. So the first story we're gonna go into is the Sicilian mafia in the 1800s. And you know, I'm really interested in the mafia, love mafia movies, love mob movies. Um, something about them um, really interests me. So, you know, we talk about Peaky Blinders, Goodfellas, The Sopranos, um, of course, The Godfather movies, um, Casino even, you know, like I'm, I'm a big fan of all those movies. Um, and that generation um, of actors was really good too. Not too much to do with uh, what we're talking about today, but I'm um, very interested by the mafia. And, you know, one thing that's frustrating about um, the way the book goes into it is they talk about the mafia in Italy, right? Um, I'm most interested, or we, we see in mainstream media, like the, the New York mob or the New Jersey mob or even the Chicago mob, right? But um, this, this, this passage goes through um, the, the mafia in Italy itself, so the roots, the origins. So, you know, going off that note, let's go ahead and just talk about the origins of the mafia. So you wouldn't know, you wouldn't really like think of this um, as the origination point, but it's the mafia started in the 19th century um, in orange and lemon groves, right? So you know, agriculture in Western Sicily. So um, citrus fruits were in, in high demand and the output for these fruits was good in Sicily. So people could turn a, a substantial profit um, if they were able to, you know, get the, get the growing right. So um, given that potential from, er from earning uh, and, you know, selling these fruits, um, something called the citrus fruit protection rackets started occurring. 
um, the, the book uses this example of a farmer who was driven from his farm by racketeers. So going forward, that, that farmer told the police about this whole situation, you know, that people are coming onto his farm, um, you know, causing trouble, destroying his plants. But the police did nothing. So what that really insinuates is that the racketeers were working with the police as well. So the police probably had a cut of the profits. Um, so the main the main mobster or gangster during this time uh, in Italy was Antonio Giamona. And he wanted to develop a monopoly on that fruit, right? Once again, we see with the con artists, all, all, all people who are committing these crazy crimes, um, they, they're finding profit and opportunity, opportunity in in any circumstance, right? We saw um, with Victor Lustig, you know, selling the Eiffel Tower for uh, scrap metal, um, selling Swampland with uh, Charles Ponzi, um, postage stamps, and going all the way forward here to to citrus fruits, right? So um, people are going to find those opportunities um, to change their circumstances. So um, we go forward. We talk about Antonio Giamona, right? So his, his reach applied to local police, local politicians, um, even the drivers and dock workers that transported these goods back and forth. So he was able to like strong arm, blackmail, or even bribe these people. And um, the book goes forward to say like the, the, the main source of power here, though, was the ability for the mafia to embed themselves into the government, right? So they would um, uh, coax government officials and influence them, um, the people in power to make decisions, right? And that's where the real power comes from. So, um, you know, we we saw in the Godfather movies. Anyone who's watched that trilogy is one of the one of the best series of all time. Um, how you know senators and police officers would turn a blind eye to like racketeering, gambling, even prostitution, um, whether they were forced to, um, or they were taking a cut of the action, right? Um, we saw with um, I forget the character's name in uh, in the first Godfather movie where the where the police captain was working with um, Salazzo, right, uh, and, and that family, uh, and they were really uh, hoping to pull off all the guards from Don Corleone's hospital so that another mafia family could come and kill him, right? So the police can be involved, public officials can be involved, um, and I'm I'm assuming like even in Sicily a deal would go like, okay, you know, either you make this deal with me and you'll turn a profit from it, it'll be illegal, or I'll kill you, right? Going forward to God, the Godfather is saying, I'll make him an offer he can't refuse, right? Um, so, you know, coming back to the book here, after World War I, uh, authorities start to look deeper into the mafia's activities. So the, the authorities would arrest like some of these high profile mob bosses, um, but they never really attacked the mafia as an entire organization. So, you know, when one boss was in jail, he could still run the operation from jail um, and have his capos, you know, kind of take over while he was away. Um, and going forward, right, they have a whole structure. Um, so the head of the family is the Don, right? So we, so like Don Corleone from uh, The Godfather. Then the next up is his advisor, the consigliere. And then you have the capo regime, which are his captains, right? Maybe four or five other families underneath the Don. And beneath them are the button men, right? The soldiers. So they're the ones who are going to perform the hits and whatnot. Um, you know, you, you push a button on a guy. That's what they say. So coming back to the book here, uh, around 1925, Benito Mussolini 
started a task force to crack down on mafia activity. So at that point, they had incarcerated about you know 11,000 Sicilians and used a lot of strong-arm tactics to catch them. Um, they would also conduct mass trials, and the public was not a, was not made aware of this at all. So you know that's a little bit um, uh, I guess swindling on the government side or you know unethical, but um, I guess they sought to fight fire with fire. You know Benito Mussolini did. So um, what you can what you can go off of that note is public outrage, right? Mafia would kill um, people for for profit, right? Whether they were civilians, public officials, police officers, whatever. So it's not surprising that once there's public outrage, action is going to be taken swiftly. So um, going forward, um, about 500 um, mafiosi, what they call them, is mafia bosses. They went to America and established the Sicilian mob there. Now, I wish they went into it further, but that's kind of where they stopped. But if you think about it, right, um, even in the Godfather movies, Vito Corleone comes to Ellis Island in like 1907 or something like that. Um, and you can imagine that they go to America and they land on the uh, East Coast, right, down the Boston, New York area. So um, essentially they established their mobs like in New York and New Jersey, right? So really close um, to the immigration point for these Italian immigrants and mob bosses. So um, another interesting point, in 1957, there was a mobster named Joe Bonanno, and he established a committee uh, to resolve disputes amongst Italian families. So um, that to me is very interesting, right? Because they, br they break laws, right? Mafia breaks the laws, they do illegal activities, um, but they follow their own set of rules. Um, so you see something here about not following an established authority, but still needing some kind of authority, right? So this committee um, would have punishments and uh, processes for breaking rules, right? Um, but ultimately that commission was super useless um, because the mafia families are used to operating by themselves. Um, so a, a committee such as this really wasn't taken well. So the first mafia war between families um, took place in 1961 took place between the Greco and the La Barbera families. There was a total of about 68 victims um, from that war. And then we move forward to the Chiaculli Massacre, the Chiaculli Massacre, I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, um, which occurred in 1963. So at this point, seven police and military officers were killed. So if we think about this, in, in 1961, the first war was 68 victims. They, that's significantly more than seven in 1963, right? So um, in in those 68 victims, they don't really go into what that demographic comprised of, but they do say in 1963 that there was military and police officers killed. Now, if a police officer or a military officer gets killed, there's going to be some backlash there, right? The government cannot let um, the public killing of um, government officials go unnoticed. So essentially this war started um, in 1963 because there was a bomb intended for a member of the Greco family. But the police force tried to disarm it and they did it unsuccessfully um, and ultimately um, police officers killed trying to um, defuse that bomb. So after that they really militarized. So they arrested about, about 1200 mafiosis um, the government established an anti-mafia task force. Um, 
And then this opened the way, though, for a new mob family, the Corleone family, right? So the 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 Godfather series is based um, loosely on a true story of the Corleone family um, and their dominance um, in the mafia industry, right? So um, there's another war in the 80s um, between the Corleone family um, for the dominance of the uh, the Cosa Nostra, right? Or that's what they call the mafia. Um, so the 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 Corleone family rose to power and accompanied that with a dramatic increase in murders of public figures, right? So you know, in the Godfather movie, they make them seem like these anti-heroes, right? Like they weren't trying to be um, violent people; they were just trying to make a name for themselves, right? But in reality, a lot of people were murdered, a lot of people were killed. Um, I love the movies, but it may paint a different picture than what was actually happening. So. A lot of chief prosecutors, police captains, other officials were disappearing or found dead. So, you know, things were getting worse. So after this point, um, it became illegal to be part of any, um, any mafia-associated group. And then there was additional legislative action taken as well. So they put a law in place that if um, uh, a mafia boss was convicted, right, um, they would take all of his wealth so he couldn't exercise power from prison. And we see that a lot, especially in Sopranos, right? Um, with the New York City mob, one of the, the main bosses was put in jail and they snatched all his wealth from him. So he was pretty much useless at that point. So, you know, obviously the mafia are going to go back and forth um, and more violence came about. Um, many more public officials were murdered. Tensions rose. Um, you know, if legislation was passed, the mafia would respond with killing um, someone. Um, and then finally, in 1987, the police force had enough information to arrest um, and convict about 485 um, mafiosi, right? And they were sentenced to a combined total of over 2,700 years in jail. And so this is where the mafia had their ultimate downfall. Um, you know, the mafiosi who um, weren't incarcerated or were attempted to be incarcerated would um, cut deals for less jail time. They were turned informants, right? So you think about it. Um, under the pressure of facing, you know, a significant amount of jail time, a lot of people are going to stick to their principles, right? Stick to their guns. But a lot are going to cut deals, too. So they start to conduct sting operations. And then... Um, the Italian government also sent about 8,000 soldiers to take charge of the day-to-day -day police activities in Italy. So, um, like I said, they were setting up sting operations, and um, ultimately, this killed the mafia's activities. Now, we don't know like if they're still operating to this day and whatnot, but um, you know, they they the police force came at them with precision, right? Um, and I'm sure their activities are very, very, very um, minimal these days, but you know, I could be wrong. So, um, you know, to wrap up this story, you know, maybe let's just talk about Michael Corleone's character because I, I think Al Pacino did a great job um, with his role as Michael Corleone. So, you know, for those of you that, that haven't seen, I don't want to ruin it for you, but it's a very long movie, um, about three hours long. So um, Michael Corleone came back from the war um, and he didn't want any part of his family's bit mafia business, right? He wanted to be a legitimate citizen, um, and that's why he went to fight in the war, right? A lot of immigrants will tell you to like um, uh, not fight, you know, don't go, don't join the army, right? Like, what are you fighting for, you know? But 
you know, Michael Corleone is like, I'm a citizen of this country. Um, this country has given me a lot of prosperity, so I'm going to fight for it. Um, his family was even mad at him for going, right? Him and Sonny got into a huge fight over it, um, but he still went. But once he saw his father in danger with like Salazzo um, and that family, Michael Corleone knew he could use his military experience um, to triumph in that situation because the family structure, right, with a consigliere um, is set up for him to be like a general or a commander of his troops or his battalion, right? So I'm sure he got a taste of like that army life again. Um, and we see that with a lot of PTSD and things like that. So he was changed. You could see once he started getting power um, and his family started triumphing that he, he got caught up in that life. So um, a very sad story for the Corleone family um, in terms of the way it's portrayed in the Godfather movies, but um, a, a brilliant movie, great acting. Um, so yeah, I would suggest everyone watch that. So we'll hop off the mafia um, and um, we'll move forward to our next story, which is the, the Wild Bunch. So this takes place in America um, between 1889 and like 1908. So some, just setting the, the landscape here, the main territories here are Wyoming, Utah and Colorado. So we just talked about the mafia um, that had a very organized structure. So, you know, judging by the name of this one, the Wild Bunch, um, I'm sure you can assume um, that they weren't as organized, right, as a mafia was. So um, Butch Cassidy was the leader of the Wild Bunch, and he was born in Utah um, to a Mormon family in 1866. So he got the name Cassidy from a cowboy that used to work on his ranch, um, and he picked up Butch during a, a stint, they say, at a butcher's um, shop. So they don't really go into it too much, but I'm assuming some type of violence occurred over there. So Butch Cassidy is his new name. So um, Butch Cassidy committed his first crime in 1889, and he was 23 at this point. So him and his friends um, went to some bars in Colorado, and they they robbed it, right? And they made off with about $24,000, which is about uh, $650,000 today. So a large sum there. So after that, right, you get the taste of crime, spoils, right? Better than working a real job, I suppose. Um, they became train robbers, um, and they got that taste of that life of crime. So their modus operandi, right, was they would lay low, um, in these canyons in Utah um, or Wyoming, right? For, for months, they would just lay low, lay low, lay low. Um, and they would hide out in cabins or on ranches, you know? And they actually had good rapport with the ranches they would hide out on. Um, a lot of the, they would protect um, the, the, these ranches from different racketeers and other cowboys trying to like, you know, loot and pillage around there. But anyway, once they felt ready, they would venture out and rob some trains across the Western states. So, once again, we see this uh, this this modus operandi or this code of conduct. Okay, so we see with you know the mafia, Peaky Blinders, Sopranos, they have their own code of conduct. Um, Butch Cassidy claims he never killed a man, but there was at least one instance where someone was killed during a train robbery that he was involved in. So once again, breaking the law but obeying the rules. Um, he once robbed the train with his group outside of uh, Wyoming in 1899. And the way the way they would do this was, they would detach the last the last cars um, from from the train, okay, um, right before a bridge. So that was the the cars with probably people on it or things that weren't valuable, and everything that was valuable was released right before the bridge, and then they would make their way across the bridge and blow up the bridge. 
so that half the train is across the bridge and half the train is on the other side of the bridge. Um, and then they'll take all the valuables, and in this particular instance, they made off with about $30,000, which is almost $900,000 today. So, you know, this, this style of, uh, of robbery is, is very sloppy, right? Um, and it's very high profile because there's a lot of goods on there, there's people involved um, and things like that. So you get the notion that they're gonna be caught at some point, right? So um, Sheriff Josiah Hazen um, was assigned to this case uh, to catch the, the wild bunch. And he led a team across a 75 mile manhunt for the Butch Cassidy gang. Um, and you know, 75 miles is, is kind of a lot right now, actually, you know, in a car, but back then it was probably a, a big, big radius, um, to look for, um, a few people, right? So 75 miles is pretty big back in the day on horseback or whatever. So, um, ultimately, you know, Josiah caught up with the gang at, um, Castle Creek Ravine and there was a shootout. And the sheriff was killed, and the rest of the gang escaped, right? So unsu unsuccessful manhunt there. But, you know, after this, the Wild Bunch knew that um, they couldn't operate in these big numbers anymore. So they started robbing in groups of three or four. Um, and as they kept robbing, obviously, they gained more notoriety, and they um, became more popular. And so not only did state authorities come after them, but federal authorities as well. And there was a dead or alive warrant put on them. So... You know, since they're operating in smaller numbers, they're starting to get picked off one by one, right? They're starting to get shot, killed, arrested one by one. So after, you know, a few years of doing this, uh, the, the remaining game, gang members, including Butch Cassidy, they fled to South America. And, and they robbed and pillaged down there a little bit. But there was one final shootout in November of 1908 um, where Butch Cassidy was killed, right? So he died in his mid-40s must have led an extremely entertaining life, right? It was probably very um, adrenaline heavy. But we, we see with a lot of these mob stories and these bandit stories, like ultimately if you're breaking the law, you're hurting people, um, you're corrupt, life is going to end in sadness for you one way or the other. Um, you know, going back to, you know, uh, The Godfather in the, in the final um, episode or the final story, um, Michael Corleone dies at the end of the movie, but he loses his wife um, his daughter dies. His son wants nothing to do with him. Um, he ultimately dies um, in Italy by himself with no one with him, right? So just a really, really sad story um, here with the Wild Bunch, with the Godfather as well. So, you know, that was the story of the Wild Bunch. Um, and then we'll move forward into our final story for today, which is um, the Beer Wars which occurred in uh, my hometown, Chicago, Illinois. Um, not sure if I'm proud of it or not, but uh, occurred in Chicago, Illinois from 1923 uh, to 1929. Probably a bigger gap there, but um, we're talking about the beer wars themselves. So um, a quick illustration, you know, painting the picture for you guys, uh, is there was a Friday night in Chicago and six gangsters bust into a saloon and they attack the bar owner. They beat him senseless. And a few days prior to that, the, the saloon owner had refused to purchase beer from a Chicago Southside game, gang called the O'Donnell Gang. And he's like, I have to remain loyal to the Saltese McErlane Gang, right? So you see some different factions on the south side of Chicago here. Um, so a theme you'll see with this, with mobs and mafias and organized crime, is that innocent people are going to pay in blood 
or you know money whatever for the rifts amongst the mobs right so um the o'donnell gang in this situation threatened the bar owner to purchase from them and they left him with multiple skull fractures and um like i said this gang violence was a direct result of prohibition right public policy in the 1920s um they they assumed that um prohibition would drive crime down and we'll talk about that in a little bit um but essentially like i said prohibition outlawed the sale of liquor in the united states and so that brings opportunity right um, bootleggers uh, began to surface and filled that demand for liquor so they would smuggle liquor in from other countries and package it um, in their own way and we saw in uh, Peaky Blinders that um, Thomas Shelby was sending single malt whiskey and gin to Canada uh, and uh, America where there was prohibition right he was hiding it in in car part boxes so um, like I said, the mafia was heavily involved here, and they gained even more power through the success of this this smuggling and this uh, uh, prohibition uh, period. So um, we talk about the most notorious mobster, right? And obviously, if you think about Chicago mob, you're gonna you're obviously gonna think about Al Capone. So it was estimated that Al Capone probably earned sixty million dollars at the time, which amounts to about nine hundred million today. And that was each year. So um, he ultimately had a, a monopoly over the liquor trade in Chicago, especially on the south side of the city. Now, I could be speculating here, but this may be why the south side of Chicago is so um, poverty stricken right now, right? It could have something to do with those beer rackets, liquor rackets back in the day. So coming back to Al Capone, he worked for a guy named Johnny Torrio. And Johnny had divided up the South Side into multiple territories. Each territory had its own gangs, and they would supply these speakeasies. Um, so now, I didn't know what a speakeasy was, like, I'll be honest about that, but I hear it a lot. It sounds like a cool word. But ultimately, speakeasies were places where, um, you know, there was there was liquor funneled through it during Prohibition, right? Um, and each territory had its own gangs, like I said, had their own speakeasies. They would supply brothels and casinos with their liquor. Um, the north side was controlled by the Irish-American mob, which makes total sense because if anyone has ever been to the north side of Chicago, there is a lot of Irish influence in terms of the pubs, restaurants, and the look and feel in general. Um, so the gangs would always fight over um, customers, and they would undercut each other and things like that. They would threaten bar owners and steal, each other's, steal from each other's distributors. So um, once again, we see a deal or death here for anyone involved, um, especially the bar owners. So um, obviously, right, a lot of these turf struggles would turn violent right away. And that's where the, the gun, known as the Chicago typewriter, came into play, right? And that was the Thomas machine gun, otherwise known as a Tommy gun. So talking about the beer wars themselves, um, it was mainly between the O'Donnell gang, the Saltese McErlins gang, the Capone gang, and the Sheldon gang. Um, so flash forward, there was a day where a Sheldon gang member was shot and killed by a Salty's McEarlin mobster. Um, so essentially, a Northside Irish mob boss was killed in 1924. Um, so after that, um, Torrio retired because he had also survived an assassination attempt, and he handed all of his business over to Al Capone at this point. So um, Al Capone inherited a war, um, 
and this war came to a climax during the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in 1924, and this is where seven Northside gangsters were killed. So, you know, flash forward to the end of Prohibition, um, Capone started expanding into racketeering, prostitution, trafficking, um, and dominated Chicago for many years. Um, and what's funny about that was, you know, I, I, I watched this movie called Untouchables with Kevin Costner from back in the day, but I read up that, you know, it wasn't really any of Capone's illegal activities that got him incarcerated. He was actually incarcerated on tax fraud, right? Because you have to report income and he wasn't reporting income. And that's how he got um, thrown in jail. So like I said, your illegal activities are going to get you caught in some facet um, or other. But let's talk about prohibition itself, okay? So like, let's talk about the economic effect of that. So like I said, um, public policy creators thought that, you know, driving down prohibition or, you know, um, outlawing liquor um, was going to result in a downward spiral in crime. But it actually did the exact opposite. So um, crime rates rose by 24%, which is extremely high. And it also opened the way for black market liquor. Um, they also created a Bureau of Prohibition, which cost about $4 million to operate every year. So high cost there. Um, you talk about manufacturing, right? Manufacturing went down as well because, um, you know, people weren't creating liquor anymore or manufacturing it. So taverns and plants closed. And, you know, going forward, a lot of large manufacturers were shut down. And that causes a reverse in, in innovation, right? So we talk about, let's look, let's look at um, companies today like Apple, Google, Tesla, you know, Amazon. These are all, um, they're all titans of industry, right? And at the forefront of innovation. So if you were to um, cut off a company like that, there's going to be some downward effects, right? Downstream effects of it. Um, innovation is not going to be as heavily emphasized. Um, these, these big organizations have the resources to constantly innovate. So um, going back to prohibition, the the advancements in the beverage industry halted, right? Um, and there was almost a reversal of technolo technological advancements in this era um, because they had made it illegal. So ultimately, you know, just a lot of food for thought there in terms of crime, right? And, the, and it being a reaction to economic situations. So, you know, that's all I got for you guys today. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast series. Um, feel free to leave me any feedback. Um, and remember, only positivity. Thanks, guys.